So let's talk about right effort and that it's a balance. And you've already meant, just mentioned that you can see that if people don't have enough effort, then all kinds of things can happen, uh, including just quitting practice and not getting any value out of it. Somehow they're kind of related. I would go so far as to say that um, it's not generally consistent where somebody is going to be um, generally over and over again with not enough effort. Um, that is also quite um, likely to say that it's not going to be also that someone is going to be consistently putting in too much effort. That each one of us is going to move back and forth between not enough effort and right effort until we find, um, let us say, a balance point. Now, along with finding that balance point, is something else remarkable going on. That is, as we gain skill and as we gain experience with right effort, it actually becomes easier. Yeah. That ultimately, right effort actually is no effort at all. Um, you could say in, in, um, in regard to somebody who really wants something and they know it's bad for them. And so they do what's necessary to resist it. They either, uh, walk away from the com computer and don't write that email or they, um, put that donut back in the refrigerator or something, right? Uh, and so they take a lot of effort in the beginning, but but later uh, the donut never came out of the refrigerator. So you don't have to have the right effort to put it back in the refrigerator. You see what I'm talking about? That um, uh, basically one could go so far as to say the deeper one is stuck in dukkha right now, which means the, that the thoughts are unwholesome, they remain unwholesome, they continue coming back over and over again. And that's the kind of, uh, that's the point in time when the most effort is needed. And yet most people put in too much effort even if they're practicing correctly to a point, but then they're not practicing correctly because that point that they've got, they're not satisfied with it. They want more and they want more. Yeah. And so they put in more and more effort. Yeah. And so, um, it being then back to a balancing act, but it's again, like I said, complicated. It's a complicated balancing act because the better you get at it, then the easier it is to do. But that's true about balancing anyway. I mean, if you're going to be a high wire artist, then there comes a point when that balancing is easy. But in the beginning, when uh, the, high, uh, the beginner who's trying to do the high wire act, to get his balance, he's doing a lot of movement. Yeah, but the old experienced um, Howard artist um, can take the pole that he's got, which he uses for balance, and then there's very little movement. He stays kind of in balance. And so we could think that is also true about meditators when they're learning to practice that right, right effort to get oneself balanced. It's actually a lot of effort. They're moving all over the place, sir. <laughs> and none of that is needed. None of that is necessary. Except that they don't, they don't know that it's necessary. Um, that most of us begin practice thinking that meditation is doing something. Mm -hmm. It's an activity, for, for instance. And yet the real practice of meditation is in this moment to learn to stop doing 
to stop. To stop with the with the mind spinning and stop with all of the stuff and just relax. So how can we uh, learn to take just enough effort to relax? That's the right question. Just enough effort to relax. Because if there's any struggle in it, I mean, you can see the dichotomy or you can see the catch-22 in struggling to relax. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense. And so um, the, uh, the real struggle then is to set the burden down. You can imagine, I mean, you've got a great big heavy backpack that you've been traveling with. Right? And it, uh, have you ever done that? Have you ever traveled with a huge backpack? Uh, in basic training, that was the only thing I can remember. Okay. Uh, the point of time that I'm looking at is the point of time when we take that backpack off. In fact, walking, <laughs> yeah. walking <laughs> now you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Walking around with the backpack, we can get used to it. But taking that backpack off is actually quite a lot of work. And so that's the right effort of um, the Eightfold Noble Path is the right effort to, to, to put the burden down, to take that backpack off, that backpack that we not only are carrying around, but it's been strapped in. <laughs> strapped in for the long haul, because we've been carrying some of that luggage for years and years. And so setting that down. So, uh, Tell me more about your your situation. Um, there are a lot of different directions I can go with this, but I think a, a good one is I have a friend who uh, was able to do first jhana after like how many months? Seven or eight months of practice. And he was just doing like 45 minutes a day. And he would basically do that 45 minute practice and then like not be mindful for the rest of the day, just be kind of go back to being lazy and stuff like that. And it mm -hmm. seemed like he was progressing really slowly. He would say like, he would describe his meditation as like a shit show, distractions everywhere, but he wasn't really like blaming himself. He just like, whatever like distractions are happening, it doesn't really bother me. And like, I thought he was gonna take forever to get Jana, and then one day it was just like, Oop, did first jhana and i'm like how did this happen but um his his life approach is really relaxed very very different from the way i approach life in general and it's like if i do two hours of meditation per day i feel like i am suffering because i didn't do five hours right uh <laughs> the um, the time when we need sati is uh, various points throughout the day, and the way that I generally speak about it is is uh, talk about the worst possible moment. The worst possible moment is when we need sati. And that uh, the worst possible moment then is when the mind is the most distracted. Um, generally, uh, it's not taught very well in the West. And I think that that has something to do with both the combination of the Mahasi method and uh, the Goenka method, both coming out of Burma where they don't emphasize the joy. Yeah. Uh, to where the Thai system, especially with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, um, that there is, uh, they add um, 
those components that are mentioned in Anapanasati more specifically. Actually, you could go so far as to say that um, that the the main way that that meditation is taught in the West uh, is taught out of the Satipatthana. The Satipatthana Sutta um, talks about the four foundations of mindfulness, and it's really long, detailed on the body part. Uh, and kind of skimpy on the uh, the Vedana, and also um, in the Dhamma if you know what you're looking for, it's quite revealing. Now, what I mean by Dhamma is the four tetrad: uh, body, uh, feelings, mind, and mind's objects. The Dhamma. Okay, so uh, in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, it talks about the hindrances first, and then it talks about the five aggregates, and then it speaks on the seven factors of enlightenment, and then it mentions the Four Noble Truths. If you look at that in a, in a certain way, you can say that almost all the thinking that we do is hindrances. And that when we are not in hindrance is about the only thing that is, there is worthwhile thinking about that is in fact wholesome is the Dhamma. And that in the Satipatthana Sutta, it does mention that the hindrances, each one of them is to be removed. It's not to be allowed to be there. That the waking up process is to wake up and then to take the effort to throw those hindrances out. And yet in Western meditation, that is not emphasized very well. The way that we emphasize it with Anapanasati is talking about gladdening the mind and talking about that there's two kinds of thoughts, unwholesome thoughts and wholesome thoughts. And our job is to go into wholesome thoughts. The reason I'm mentioning this is getting back to the friend that you had. Um, Basically, what people generally do is they 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 don't put the emphasis on removing the hindrances from the mind. They think that whatever they're doing with the mind is okay to where, in fact, it's hindering them from being able to get into first jhana. And so then when they if they ever do get into first jhana, uh, it's almost happenstance or a mistake or that they weren't really kind of looking exactly what they were doing. They weren't intentionally gathering the jhana factors. They just happened to have gotten together. Okay, so it's, it's, all, it's as much a mistake or it's as much uh, normal wrong practice as anything else for people to occasionally fall into very nice states. The question is, why isn't he falling into a nice state the first day? Why did he have to take years to practice? <laughs> My friend? Yeah. Uh, that, was only, that was only eight months from starting TMI. He got first on after eight months. Eight months, huh? Okay. That sounds like uh, uh, that he could have used his eight months better practice. He could have bought a Harley Davidson and gone riding for eight months and had more joy and experience and pleasure. We actually talked about that. I think I think I mentioned to him if, if he had started with you, he probably would have gotten into first jhana much quicker than what he did. Well, let's look at that issue about right effort. There's not only uh, the amount of effort or the intensity of the effort or how strongly we're practicing or what our intention is, but it also has to do with what we're taking our effort at. Going back to that backpack analogy, that backpack could be loaded down with all of the survival gear that we need to survive, or it could be loaded down with a bunch of rocks bunch of stones. Most of us are not carrying around survival gear that is uh, keeping us alive and well and happy. We're carrying around a bunch of rubbish. And so 
one's right effort then would be to first off make a discrimination of is this worth keeping or not which actually brings us back down to the first noble truth this is dukkha this is suffering which means that the discrimination with practice is, is that when we can recognize these thoughts are unwholesome that they are in fact dukkha this is the first noble truth this is the whole quality then of the investigation that is so important um, and yet somehow or another is kind of glossed over that the students in meditation don't understand that this is actually a sitting down so that you can investigate what's really going on in the mind because a lot of what's going on in the mind is uncomfortable is dissatisfying and that if we can see it that way then we can do something about it we can throw that stuff out but a lot of the meditation practice is done in the sense of i think the term that they use you probably heard it called noting yeah right the noting practice well that that's like um here's an analogy in the the old cowboys out in the wilderness and they take their boots off at night while they're sleeping in the morning one of the things that the cowboys always do is they pick up that boot understanding they know the weight of it because if that boot is heavier than it used than it was yesterday they know to throw that boot off someplace because there's probably a snake in it so the mahasi method is noting that there's a snake in your boot and you put the boot on anyway <laughs> yeah okay another analogy that i use is imagine that you're standing in a road and a big truck is bearing down on you there's three things that we can do about that one is that we can in fact generally what happens is people don't see the truck they don't get out of the way that's what happens with most pedestrian accidents the driver didn't see the pedestrian the pedestrian didn't see the traffic and so bang but let's say that the pedestrian does see the traffic coming he does see that big truck bearing down on him now he's got three choices one he can stand there in the road and let the truck hit him two which is the, the standard meditators uh, way of doing it is we can act like Popeye and we can stand in the road with our fist out saying we're going to stop this truck and then the third way the Anapanasati way the way of the right effort is to merely stand out of the way and let the truck pass by Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so let's see how we can apply that um, analogy to practice. That if we see that truck bearing down on us, that means that we have now noted that the thought that's in the mind is a hindering thought. Thoughts about yesterday, thoughts about tomorrow, thoughts about the girl that's in the back of the room, thoughts about this, that, and the other thing uh and that if we can see that those thoughts are dangerous if we don't think that those thoughts are dangerous then we'll just keep them going there's the other one which is the uh the standard working too hard meditator is he think that his job is is that he's got to stop the mind <laughs> crush mind with mind right to crush the mind with mind which in fact uh there is a one statement in all of the suttas um where that is mentioned but that's after a long list of other things let's try step one without going to immediately to step five of crushing mind with mind let's not do popeye right now <laughs> let's do it the other way let's do it with in the sense of uh for the beginning meditator just getting our mind into the wholesome state is enough 
because we spend so much time in unwholesome states. If we can start just putting the mind in a wholesome state and living our lives as if we had the mind in a wholesome state all along, I don't see there's much more to do. But that's pretty hard to do. And another way of looking at it is this crushing the mind or stopping the mind is that we don't live our lives like that. If some jhana dude was able to sit in jhana for, let us say, 24 hours, 46 hours, 100 hours or whatever, and he is determined that he's going to stay in that jhana no matter what happens, he'll probably come out of that jhana eventually in the morgue. (laughs) or in the ICU because he is um, not behaving the way that the people around him would expect him to behave. Normally when you kick a dog, you expect him to react. And you can imagine somebody there that you you keep kicking them and they're bound to determine not to react, not to react. Okay, they're going to maintain that, that state of jhana. I don't see what's much value in doing that. The likelihood is that if they kicked you one time to get you to rouse and you didn't rouse, they're going to kick you again and then they're start going to part start poking you and whatnot. So um, this idea that the Westerners have of, of the higher jhanas don't look like um, that that's, a, let us say, a living style. And so if that's not a living style, then what's the point? And and not only that, but in our language, we use words like trance, uh, hypnosis, out of it. That's the language that we have for those kinds of states. And I don't hear them, uh, let us say, referred to in a in a loving friendly way that that's the object to be all tranced out that what we want in fact that's not even the teaching of the buddha the buddha doesn't teach jhana and no jhana he teaches dukkha and no dukkha or suffering and getting out of suffering and so the question is can we get out of suffering and still have an easy life that in fact the easy life that we're talking about is a life that's free from suffering, as opposed to pulling a a, a bodhidharma, spending nine years in a cave. We hear that story and we look up on him. Wow, he must have been a really wonderful saint to spend nine years in a cave. And yet I ask you, Matt, do you intend to spend nine years in a cave? You spend, you know, 19 years in their next 19 years in a cave? Or would you rather live a life that's something like the life that you're living? You just want to live it happily. I do want that, uh, the latter, but when I read the suttas, it seems like I'm not doing enough. So it's like the Buddha went into homelessness, and it seems like both the Buddha and Jesus advocate for homelessness as the best method. So I'm sitting here thinking, why am I not doing the best method? But then I have, let's say, my reptilian brain saying like, screw that, I don't want to be homeless. Of the 400-something thousand Buddhist monks in Thailand, there are times when many of them will go on Tudong but I would doubt that any of them would say that there are homeless, especially in the way that Americans are homeless. Um, <laughs> there's a difference, I would say, in the, in the, the attitude. And the attitude is, is that if we can feel like that we're at home where we are, then we're at home. And if we're at at home, we certainly are not homeless. And yet the people who think of themselves as homeless, 
they're also out looking for something. They're wandering around. They're somehow on a pilgrimage. They're looking for that holy place. And it is true that Buddha started out that way. But once he figured out what was going on, he still traveled, but now he was traveling for teaching. Yeah. Not not just wandering around looking for something. Okay. And so the issue then is, is that if you can find what you're looking for, then the wandering is no longer needed. Um, another way of looking at it, though, uh, which is most convenient, is instead of looking at it as homeless, let's look at it as being in seclusion, to get away from it all, literally, to get away from society, to get away from, uh, let us say, the new input from society that is the same old, same old input we've been getting all of these years. And we've been getting so much input that we can't tell the difference between our own signal and the outside noise. And so getting ourselves into seclusion, getting ourselves away from it all is a really good thing to do. Uh, the question is, how long does it take? And the answer is, is that if you can be, get secluded and be secluded in one hour, then that's all you need. <clears throat> but most of the time, um, and then in fact, there's a very good reason for having these things called 10 day meditation retreats, because that gives the students an opportunity to go off on on retreat and get away from it all. <clears throat> now, generally what happens is, is the first two or three days, the students are still getting over the newness of the retreat as well as still thinking about what happened before they got there, the argument they had with the ticket agent and all kinds of stuff is still on their mind. Three days before the end of the retreat, now they're mentally packing their bags and figuring out how they're going to get off the island and where they're going to go next and all this kind of stuff, leaving only a couple of days in the middle of the retreat for them to actually get practice. And that's the time when they're saying, poor me, this is really a lot of hard work. It's only on day seven when we can see the end of the retreat coming that we recognize, hey, this is going to be over soon. What a relief. I've made it through this retreat, and that's when all the planning starts about coming out of it. So maybe 10 days is not even enough for people to get away from it all, or maybe getting away from it all over and over and over again until we can begin to recognize uh, the value in that seclusion. And basically what that seclusion is is that we need to get away from it all enough so that we can now tell the distinction between all of the learned behavior that I had learned from society and what is worth knowing. Basically, all that we have learned, all the sum total of all of the knowledge that we have gained from everyone can be put into uh, a bag and label that bag in the Pali language, Silabhata Paramasa. Attachments to rights, rules, and rituals. In other words, how we're supposed to do things. And so when students actually begin to practice meditation and they hear the instructions of it, they take these instructions of meditation and put them in the same bag as the instructions for everything else they've ever learned. Which then means that they um, have shoulds and woulds and coulds, but now they have you should meditate. <laughs> You, you ought to meditate. Uh, you're not doing it good enough. Yeah. All right. So basically this bag on one side is labeled Silabata Paramasa, but on the other side of the bag, it's labeled critical thinking. Now in our society, critical thinking is highly regarded. We tell our students that they've got to think critically. You've got to think this way through. You've got to understand what's, what's going on. 
but the whole quality of criticism has to do with finding what's right and what's wrong. <laughs> yeah. And we can see that most criticism is not based upon wisdom. It's not based upon the wisdom of knowing dukkha and dukkha naroda, or what is wholesome and what's unwholesome. Almost always our right and our wrong has to do with our feelings, in the sense that if we like it, then we want it, and if we want it, it must be good. And if we don't like it, then it must, uh, then I want to get rid of it, and it must be bad. So our good and our bad comes from liking and not liking, as opposed to the wisdom of seeing what is wholesome and what is not wholesome. So this is where our criticism comes, and we can see that we were raised critically, that in the beginning of a child's life, uh, the child is nurtured. Everything is okay with that child. The first poop that the child does after a couple of days of birth, everybody wants that. Yay, he did his first poop. Let's put a diaper on him. Let's uh, feed this baby. Let's see if we can Gucci, Gucci, Gucci and get him to smile. You know, this is the kind of thing that we do with tender infants. But a six-year-old that poops on the floor, now you got a problem. Now you're being critical. You should <laughs> not do that. Okay. And so uh, the parents, because of society and societal pressure, changes from being nurturing full-time to that infant into being a little bit of nurturing and a whole lot of criticism. And now the rest of our life, we're raised in criticism. And what mm -hmm. the Anapanasati practice really has a lot to do with is coming out of that critical mind state back into a nurturing mind state so that we can nurture ourselves. But when the students are critical of themselves in the sense of, I'm not getting enough meditation or my meditation practice is not good enough, then they're gaining no benefit from that meditation practice at all because they're still in the same mindset that they were. And they could have that uh, same mindset about meditation that they could about any other activity. Making yeah, a for cup a long time. Or write. Go ahead. For a long time, and even now, I'm in the habit of actually turning Dhamma into something that, that bites me, like grabbing a snake by the wrong part and allowing it to bite me by being critical about everything. About mm -hmm. I had this distraction, or like I, I thought about that yesterday so many times, like I don't want to think about this again, but it keeps happening. Uh, I didn't meditate enough, I didn't breathe well enough. Mm -hmm. on and on well that's the criticism that you've gotten used to doing and you you need to become aware of that criticism you can see that that criticism is nothing but just more traffic out on the road just another truck barreling down on you are you going to let that criticism hit you yep you normally do can you stand <laughs> out of the way and you can say oh i don't have to be critical of myself right now i'm okay that that's the right way of practice is, is to come out of the criticism and into the nurturing mind, allow yourself to feel good. That in fact, um, over time I see uh, various meditation teachers, um, some of them uh, work through Lion's Roar and other places like that, and some of them have some fame. Uh, one of the things that I keep seeing, though, is, let us put it this way, it is the elderly uh, nuns that I get such a kick out of because they know that it's joy to become joyful, to become happy. This is the actual teaching of the Buddha. And yet many of them who are practicing from the uh, go. Goenka method uh, and the Mahasi method, they're not particularly joyful because th there is no emphasis on that joy that there is in some of the Mahayana and in the Anapanasati of Theravada. Uh, and so 
uh, it is taught this idea of joyfulness, of getting over our criticism and allowing things to be the way they are in a, in a really nice way. Um, now, let us look at various levels or layers that people can go in. At the bottom layer, let us say, is all-out warfare. All-out warfare. Someplace between all-out warfare and, and the next level up is going to be a cold war. To where we're doing anything we can to hurt the other person so long as we don't get caught doing something to them. But it, open warfare is not okay. Uh, we have to be in subtle warfare, uh, a cold war. The next level up from that is what we would call tolerance. And that this is the level where we're looking for to try to bring, let us say, the American racist out of his cold war and, and <laughs> recently hot war in racism up to being able to at least tolerate it. There's a level above that toleration that we would call acceptance. But above acceptance, there is, let us call it friendship or friendliness. And now we're getting into the territory of the Buddha. That it doesn't really matter whether we're, um, we're at war or that we don't agree with someone. And in fact, that happens with Buddhism quite a lot. The entire teachings of the Buddha, the Buddha at one time said to Ananda, when Ananda uh, came from Sariputta and said, Sariputta tells me that friendship is half the Dhamma. And the Buddha responds to that, no, friendship is the whole thing. It's the whole show. Just all there is is friendship. In the sense of, can you be friendly with yourself? Can you be friendly with the people around you that you agree with? Can you be friendly around the people that you don't agree with? Can you be friendly around the people who are trying to attack you? <laughs> okay. Now, I offer you one step above even friendship. And that I'll use the, uh, the, uh, the Latin... Uh, phrase amor fati amor like amore in Italian uh, you've heard the word before when the moon meets your eye like a big pizza pie that's amore I don't know if you've heard that's an old song from the 1950s okay but the word amore means to be in love with or to be um, uh, feeling good about, which is a higher level feeling than friendship. And that the amore, uh, fati, then the word fati in this case actually means fate. To be in love with fate. Now we're not talking about fate in the sense of predestiny or uh, providence or something off in the future that somebody knows about and we don't, but we ought to. We're talking about the fate that actually just happens in the moment. Whatever it is is happening, that was your fate. Doesn't mean that it was predestined, but in a way it was, um, let us say, the results of many complicated cause-effect relationships so that it was yeah. caused and affected and caused and affected. And whatever that outcome is, that's, that's your fate. Can you fall in love with your fate? Can you fall in <laughs> love with what's happening? Just yeah. whatever's happening, that's wonderful. Yeah. Okay, so this is the place that we're going. We're looking from hot war to cold war to tolerance to acceptance to friendship to be in love with reality. I know a lot of people are in hot war with their own life. And they are miserable. And so they practice meditation. And now they're in hot war with their life. And they've got new skills to beat themselves up with. Yes. And so 
they really haven't changed what needed to be done. We need to actually change the kind of thoughts that we have that will take us down into Cold War and Hort War and change those thoughts into loving, accepting, nurturing thoughts. Another way of talking about it is um, duality versus unity. And a lot of people cannot see the unity. They can only see the duality in the sense of the duality would then be good and bad, critical. Like the, uh, uh, the newspaper will have an article by a critic uh, criticizing the movie. And he'll say what he liked about it and what he didn't like about it, right? Up and down, back and forth, good and bad. This is the critical. The other one is nurturing and that many people will think that, oh, nurturing just means I like everything or everything is is good uh, as opposed to it's not bad. So they think that, oh, I can take only half of the critical and be okay with only half the critical. But we're talking about, no, we can see critical as duality. Yes and no. That if I like this, I inherently don't like that. And we can see that we begin to change our children's attitude uh, at about the age of four, five, or six from being completely nurturing it. At the age of two and three, anything the child does is fine. But by the time the child gets six, now the parents are very critical. If you don't come home with your books to do your homework, you're going to have trouble from mom and dad, right? But a two-year-old or an 18-month-old infant, if he forgets his books, nobody cares. He didn't have any <laughs> books. He didn't need any books, right? So you can see what happens. Something happens in, the, in our lives that change us from being nurtured into being criticized. And in a way, we have that longing of going back to being in that nurturing state to where everything is okay. So the unity then is the nurturing, and you could also call nurturing uh, in a way bonding, that a mother will bond with her child. And that there's actually a bonding chemical, uh, oxycotton. And so that bonding chemical, we can produce that on our own. Moms produce it with an infant. But you and I can produce it just by being in conversation. Or this is why we pet the dog. That physical contact with the dog, and the dog really likes it. Because why does a dog like it? Because he has the same brain chemicals going on in his brain than you do. He likes getting scratched and you like scratching him. And so there's that, uh, that quality uh, of mutual uh, gooiness in the brain uh, that has these new chemicals in it. Uh, when we recognize that those chemicals that we have have to do with what our attitude is. If we change our attitude, we can change our own brain chemistry. And so we go into the concept of nurturing, which means then that any of the thoughts that we have that are critical thoughts have to be seen as hindrances. And any thoughts that are nurturing thoughts will then be the kind of thoughts that would be wholesome, that we will allow. This is a major quality of the teaching that we cannot stand in the road and try to stop that truck. We're not going to be able to stop the mind, but we don't even want to do that anyway. We just don't want these thoughts to run over us. And so we uh, will stand aside and let that let that thought pass. This is the way we want to begin to practice over and over again. And so that idea of seclusion is, is that if I can clean out the rubbish that's already in the mind, then I can deal with the new rubbish that comes from society. 
And so we want to be able to get off into seclusion, but we don't want to live our life off in seclusion. The Buddha didn't live his life in seclusion. He didn't live his life always in the woods. In fact, they started to build huts for him, and within a couple of hundred years, they had full monasteries going. And so um, it's much more of a, an issue of being in seclusion than it is being homeless. But the whole point of it is not being homeless or in seclusion. The point of it is to get the mind cleaned out. And that everyone can get time in seclusion. That you don't have to be in public all the time. That we find time, so an hour here and an hour there, or even 20 minutes, two, three times a day. And just get ourselves into a nice state of being. This is uh, the practice. And we're practicing that over and over and over again. And as we get better at it, we can uh, go into this state very easily, very quickly. It takes very little effort. Just to I've take seen a it. deep breath. <laughs> oh, it feels so good. So there's a, after a while, right attitude actually grows. And, and the right attitude grows in the sense of, wow, this is, you know, not only do I feel really good right now, but I know that there is almost nothing that can happen that's going to take me away from this feeling of everything is okay. That I don't see any danger in the future that's going to make me feel bad. That I've got it. No matter how obstructed the mind. So the first one is, no matter how obstructed the mind gets, I can clean it out. Eventually, the attitude is, is there is no uh, uh, junk in the mind that it's even allowed in the mind. Yeah. That we're not going to allow any of that stuff in. And so uh, that, that's when real confidence comes, is when you know that you can keep the mind cleaned out. And what a relief that is that you're not going to step in any more cow pies. So that's the way that we look at it is uh, relief. All of the heavy stuff is over now. That you can have an easy life from now on. And so you can tell your thing. Those are things to gladden the mind. A lot of people like Metta but metta is nothing but gladdening the mind. That in fact, it's possible to do something like metta and still have mind of, of hindrances. But to practice metta correctly, you have to be free from the hindrances anyway. And so then you can say that, that metta is nothing but gladdening one's own mind in the hope of helping gladdening others. I actually didn't believe you on that for a while, but now I, I really understand it. Like you, uh, I think a couple talks ago, you talked about saying everything is fine, like as a wholesome thought to myself. And I mean, if I tell myself everything is fine, it's basically accomplishing what Metta is doing anyway. And plus I can control the breathing as well. Mm -hmm. And so developing that attitude of I can do this, that's the big one. Of the four, that's the hardest one, and it's the last one to come. The most important, the forerunner, is right view. If we don't have the right view about it, then we're not going to be able to do an investigation. We don't care. But once we have the right, uh, the right view, that's when we can uh, develop right sati. Then we need right effort, but the those three work together for a while, right effort, right view, and right sati. Uh, but then that fourth ingredient is added, and that fourth ingredient is right attitude. 
that's the one that really makes the others shine. It's when you've got the attitude that I can handle this. The winner's attitude. So, so would meditation, you go ahead. Would you say that's synonymous with confidence? It is confidence. It is confidence. You are sure that you're okay. You are absolutely knowledgeable, not just convinced or think that you can, but you're at, you've got the knowledge uh, and the experience to know that you can handle anything. You've been there, done that is a, is a good expression. You've been so, there, you've done that, so you know you can do that again. So would Shraddha be like fully developed right attitude? Uh, let us say it would be the pro be, uh, it would be a continuum. Okay. That you can't get out of bed in the morning without a little bit of shrada. <laughs> so it's a continuum, and that the ultimate shrada is the knowledge that anything that happens, I can handle it with ease. And delight. But that takes some skill. We can't do that without any skills. That takes great skill. The skill to see the, they use the expressions, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You probably heard that example, right? Maybe from you, but I don't really remember what it's about. Well, the sling is actually, I think, uh, um, an expression from Shakespeare. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. You can see, in fact, the word fortune. That's the uh, fate or, um, uh, that we were talking about before. But this guy sees that what fate throws at him is uh, rocks coming from a sling or arrows that are flying in the air. Right. So the um, the uh, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune means that we have to put up with the world. The reality, though, is, is that most of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune have already come our way and we remember them from the past. It is not the present and the future slings and arrows. It's the past ones that we keep getting hit with. And when we learn to deal with the old ones, we can also begin to see the new ones as they come so that we begin to develop the skills to stand out of the way. Eventually, I would say then deep wisdom comes from the fact that you can see the archer as he's drawing his bow and, and notching his arrow as opposed to see that arrow getting sh just stuck in the arm. That's way too late. Once you get shot with the arrow, now you got to deal with that arrow. But real wisdom is going to see the in the beginning of wisdom. You're going to see that arrow in the air well soon enough to dodge it. But eventually you're going to be able to see the arrow as it's being notched in on, on the string. So that you have plenty of time now to get out of the way. That's what we mean by wisdom is, is that we can see things coming better and better. Another way would be um, uh, hunters and also at, at uh, gun ranges. One of the most important rules at a gun range is which direction is that gun pointed? Everybody's walking around with guns and they better be pointed at some place other than anybody else or any of the equipment or anything. There's only one general place to point a gun and that's down at the floor. A secondary but not as good would be up in the air. But around and laterally you don't point a gun, okay? So this is something that the gun culture does, but they don't recognize that they've got 20,000 different guns in their mind. It's not just the gun that's uh, strapped to the hip, 
That's the issue that we have to watch which way it's pointed. But we need to watch what which way everything is pointed because anything can go off. And when it goes off, we want to make sure that we're not standing in the direction that we're going to get hit with it. So this is a way of looking at wisdom is, is that we can see how things are headed. We can see the direction that things are going. We can see that if that thing goes off, which what's going to get hit by his bullet. So this is a way of understanding wisdom. And it's also very much related to seeing that truck coming down the road and standing out of the way. That is actually just a different analogy for the same thing that we have to see um, that things are headed in a certain way. And so we can get out of the way easily long before it, uh, uh, let us say, the, the point of danger comes at the point of contact. I think uh, you're helping me understand that for me, it's typically like a two lane highway in one direction where it's like I have one truck coming at me, which is a hindrance, like a hindering thought. And I get rid of it, but then I go into the other lane and another truck hits me, which is like my reaction to having that hindering thought in the immediate past, which is the criticism. So I need mm -hmm. to avoid throw out the hindrance, but then also avoid the criticism that habitually which comes is just up another that. hindrance. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good analogy. You got it right. Throwing out the hindrance, but then being critical ourselves for having a hindrance. That's just another hindrance. Anything that's going to hinder you from being in a state of nurture, in, in a state of friendship, in the state of relaxation, anything that keeps you out of that state is a hindrance to it. And so criticizing yourself for having hindrances or criticizing yourself for being critical. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing that we do that. Yeah, it's a habit of being critical with ourselves, always critical. This is good. This is bad. That's right. That's is wrong. This is what the real story of Adam and Eve is all about. Is eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, which means that we have to eat the fruit. Or we have to deal with the results of our own judgments. And the result was is that Adam and Eve destroyed their own paradise. It wasn't that they were thrown out of it, literally, that they were in Eden and now they've been physically picked up and transplanted over to this other place. But rather they stayed in the same place, but it's no longer a paradise. They paved it with criticism. The humans have become critical. And without that criticism, we couldn't have built a society. But I'm not really sure that our human society is all of that great. <laughs> because we're still uh, not a happy society. That we have tall buildings, but we don't have tall minds. So our society has not helped us do the very thing that we need to do. That we thought that, in fact, if we could build something on the outside, build a culture, build a society, build buildings, build roads, build technology, that the human being would be happy. And guess what? I think that the human being is now even more unhappy than they were 500 years ago. Not as violent with each other as we were <laughs> 500 years ago, but if you've been to Washington in January this year, you know that we're still pretty violent. Yeah. And we're violent on the inside of our own mind. That's, in fact, what criticism is, is that it's actually uh, trying to break things and throw things out, and whatever it is is not good enough. So the question for you then would be, look on this hierarchy that we talked about. Are you in hot war with yourself? Are you in cold war with yourself? Are you just going to tolerate what's going on? Are you going to be in a state of acceptance? 
Are you going to be friendly with yourself? Or are you going to be absolutely in, uh, in love with whatever happens with your faith? Amor fate. Which are you going to choose? <laughs> I'll do my best to get the amor. Okay. Well, we do that one at a time, by, and this is what we mean by the investigation, to investigate where is the mind right now? Am I merely just tolerating this? Or am I going to be delighted with the Dhamma? That this is actually uh, part of the stages of the practice of Sotapan is when we get to the point where we're completely enthusiastic about the Dhamma and not very enthusiastic about anything else, that the Dhamma <laughs> is just all we care about, and yeah. that we're completely delighted with it. Completely enthusiastic and completely delighted with the Dhamma, that's the fruit of Sotapan. And that there are various stages that we go through. The first step of Sotapan the very first thing is this knowledge that no matter how obstructed the mind gets, I can clean it out. To where the fruit of the soda pond is, wow, I could look back and I haven't had anything to clean out of the mind in so long. <laughs> and so um, this is what we mean by the the practice and you can see where so many people uh, think that noting dukkha is the practice but no the noting of the dukkha the identification of the dukkha is the only the first part of the job the second part of the job is out it goes you have to actually take out the trash there's two different ways of doing that Here's an example. Mom goes into the kitchen and she sees that the trash needs to be taken out. It's dirty, it's smelly, it's, you know, needs to be cleaned up. And she calls her son, a teenager, and says, Johnny, come take out the trash. So he'll come and he'll take out the trash, but it is a lot of work for him. He doesn't really want to do it and he's complaining about it, but he does eventually take out the trash. The next example is, is that Johnny himself walks into the kitchen. He sees that the garbage is there. It stinks. He doesn't like it. And he says to himself, oh, I need to take out this trash. Now, when he takes out the trash, it actually is not nearly so much work. Because he's doing it because he sees that it needs to be done. Yeah. Not because he was told to do it. Yeah. Right. Well, guess yeah. what? How many meditators do you know that are doing meditation because they've been told to do it? I don't know, probably 80% or more, a lot. <laughs> exactly. But what we need to do is we need to get to the point of being able to see that dukkha enough for ourselves to see this got to be going, this has got to be taken out. Yeah. Let me take this stuff out. So that's the way of, we, of our own practice is that we need to see for ourselves that this is dukkha. And if we can see for ourselves that this is dukkha, that's when that gives us the, uh, let's say, the determination to get rid of this stuff. I got to get rid of this. This becomes uh, uh, a duty that I delight in doing as opposed to a duty that I look, I know I should meditate. I know I'll feel better if I do it. They, I've read all of the books, all those people <laughs> tell me. And so this is actually, in a way, this is also attitude. The attitude is, is that we're not doing it because it's good for us someday. Yeah. The attitude is I'm doing it because it's a lot of fun. I really like it. So that's the way of doing. 
I hope that you can uh, make that that change. That this is not about the rules or the uh, that you should do it, but that you can do it because you like it. It's useful. Yeah. 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 I think if I incorporate that, things will go a lot more swimmingly. Well, do you have any further questions about this? No, I don't. Uh, this talk has been really great. Well, I'm glad. I hope to see you again soon. Yep, I'll call soon. Thanks, Don. All right. Okay, Matt. We'll see you. Bye.